want to encourage you tonight to turn again to the book of Hebrews. We are making our way back into this book tonight, and we are going to begin tonight a two-week walk through its final chapter, chapter 13. But before we start this final leg of our tour through the book of Hebrews, I want to encourage you in your mind's eye to turn around and look back at the road that has gotten us where we are at this point. Because we said when we first embarked on this journey, this winding, steep, hilly kind of trail that is Hebrews, that is difficult to study, we said when we began that there is a main theme to this book that guides all of what the book has to say. And the theme, we said, and we say again tonight, is Jesus best of all. And as we've worked through the book, we've seen that come out in very clear colors. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He is better than Moses. He is better than Joshua. He is better than Aaron. He's better than the Old Covenant. He's better than its sacrifices. He's better than its priests. He's better than the tabernacle. He is better than that great cloud of Christian witnesses that we just sung about and that is spoken about in chapter 11. He's even better than heaven itself. He is the reward that we look forward to. And so as we've gone along, at every bend in the trail, as it were, we found yet another way marker that says Jesus is best of all. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. But in these last couple of chapters, chapters 12 and 13, the trail seems to take a bit of an odd turn. The signs at the bends in the road begin to read a little bit differently. And what we have in these last two chapters is a series of ethical teachings that seem somewhat unconnected to the rest of the message of the book. In fact, if you're just reading along in the book of Hebrews and you're reading it fairly quickly so that you don't forget what has gone before, you might get to this portion of the book, these last two chapters, and begin to wonder if you're still on the right track. You might say to yourself, I expected to keep finding these placards that said Jesus is better than X. Jesus is best of all. But here I get to chapter 12 and I'm reading all these things about the Lord's discipline. And then in chapter 13 tonight, we start to read about hospitality in verse 2 and visiting prisoners in verse 3. And we may say to ourselves, how does this fit in? I mean, these are wonderful things. These are true things. We know these are biblical things. But how does it fit with the message Jesus is best of all? I thought that was what the book was about. Well, I hope you're already, as you're thinking about these things, starting to realize what the answer is. The answer is, if Jesus is really best of all, if he's better than all these other people, if he's better than any religious thing or any secular thing that we could possibly set our affections on, then we need to learn how to treat him as though he were best of all. That is, there's a certain way to live in light of this message that Jesus is best of all. There's a certain protocol that comes when you're in the presence of certain kinds of people. And there's obviously a protocol that comes when you're in the presence of someone who is better than all of those other people. Jesus must come, Colossians 1.18 tells us, to have first place in everything, including and especially the lives of his own people. So if Jesus is best of all, then it's natural in our practical living that he should come to be best of all in our lives. 
And these last two chapters are just a few ways, not an exhaustive list, but a few ways in which Jesus should have first place in our lives. And tonight in chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, we see that one of the many ways in which Jesus has first place or should have first place is as we love his people and as we love people in general. So as we read, I want you to hear these commandments tonight, not as diversions from the main Hebrews trail, but as an appropriate ending. I want you to hear these not simply as good ideas or as practical ways to show others Christ's love, but as ways actually to show Christ your love. When we love other people, we are showing the love of Christ to them. But we are also, when we love other people, showing Christ that we love him. By obeying his commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what was his commandment? The most important one that he gave to his disciples. Love God first with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says in Matthew 25, Truly, to the extent that you do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you do it to me. So one of the most obvious ways to love Jesus, to give Jesus first place in your life, is to love other people. And I want us to think that out from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, which gives us a series of five sort of bullet point kind of statements that will form the five main points of our time tonight. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Five things that he says. I think you can see them quite clearly. They unfold in five separate sentences and make very easy work of a sermon preparation. Five ways that we can show Jesus that we love him by loving others. The first, verse 1, is that we love the church. Love the church. Verse 1 reads quite plainly, doesn't it? Let love of the brethren continue. And when it says brethren, you understand that it's not talking about your physical brothers. It's not talking about human brothers and sisters in general. When we read in the New Testament this word brethren or brothers, depending on what translation you have, What it means is the brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. Let love of the church continue. Now we might read verse 1 as sort of a summary statement of all that's going to follow in verses 2 through 6. And in some ways it is that. For all the statements that will follow will have to do with loving particular segments of the church. But I also think that this first sentence aside from being a topic sentence for the paragraph, needs to be looked at in its own right. It needs to be seen for its own merits. Because as we read along, 
you notice that there are individual brethren, individual kinds of church members who are not mentioned in the groupings that are listed in verses 2 through 6. And so verse 1 is kind of a blanket statement that fills in all the cracks that verses 2 through 6 don't mention. There are people in the church who aren't strangers or who aren't sufferers, verse 3, or who aren't your spouse, verse 4. And we must love those people too. And so verse 4 sort of forms a blanket for everything, even the things that aren't given detail in the verses that follow. We must love all the brethren, and they must all be a priority for us. And we also need to give individual attention to verse 1 because it reminds us, I think, that we must love the brethren in general. That is, we're not only to love all the individual brethren and sisters in the church, that's true, but we're also to love the church as a whole, the church as a group, both the church worldwide and specifically the local church. We're to seek the whole church's best interest. So then, the first exhortation here is to love the church, both its individual members and the church as a collective whole. And let me just point out and applaud you in saying that there are numerous wonderful ways that this is happening here at Pleasant Ridge. So that I feel like I can say tonight exactly what the author of Hebrews says, namely, let the love of the brethren continue. He doesn't say start loving the brothers. He says you already are loving the brothers. Keep doing it. The love of the the brothers is, I think, being passed around liberally in many respects in our midst. But though that was also true with the Hebrew Christians, the author here still feels it necessary to remind the people to love one another. And so I feel compelled to do the same. And so I just want to say to you, Pleasant Ridge, let the love of the brethren continue. Keep up the good work and even add to it. When you come in on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, look around the room and ask yourself, is there someone here whom I need specifically to love today? Someone who needs my encouragement? Someone perhaps who needs me to sit next to them during the service? Someone who needs me to sit next to their children during the service and help them? Someone who needs help getting food out of their car? Someone who needs an invitation to lunch? Someone who asks me to pray for them? Have I done that yet? If I haven't, I should do it right now, and then I should go ask them how things are going. Come to church on the lookout for a brother or a sister who needs your specific attention or encouragement or help. Let the love of the brethren continue. And then also remember that the love of the brethren is not only directed at the individual members and attenders of the church, but it's directed at the brethren in general, the church plural. Part of what it means to love the brethren is to love the church community as a collective whole. In the same way that you love your family as a whole. You love every individual member, but then there are times when you're thinking about the whole family and doing what's best for the whole family. We need to love the church that way. How can we do that? I thought about just reading to you the church covenant tonight to remind you of how we want to love this family as a whole. But that would take too long, so let me just give you a few reminders. How can you love this church as a whole? Not thinking about any individual member, but the family in general. And for many of you, these things will be obvious. You're the ones who are here tonight, um, and I'm preaching to the choir, but you can pray this for all of our church. We can love the church as a whole by attending regularly, by giving generously, by fulfilling our servant ministry roles 
faithfully by avoiding being a distraction in worship or in Sunday school as much as possible, by speaking positively rather than critically, not just about the church but just in general, by growing spiritually so that we can be more benefit to the church, by beautifying the church's collective testimony publicly, by sharing the gospel freely so that the church is added to. These are all ways, without even thinking about one other specific individual in the church, that you can love the whole church. And just quite honestly, I think all of you understand that not everybody that's a part of our family is doing these things. And so we need to pray that the love of the individual brethren would continue and that the love of the collective brethren, the church at large, would increase. Finally, before we leave this first verse, I want you to notice that this exhortation, this verse, unlike the other four exhortations that are given in verses 2 through 6, comes with no reasoning or no motivation attached to it. Now just look quickly. And you'll see that all the other exhortations come with a reason or a motive attached. In verse 2, we should not neglect hospitality, for by this some have entertained angels. There's a motivation. Verse 3, we're to remember the prisoners, since we ourselves are also in the body. Again, a motivation, a reason. Verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor. Why? For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. A motivation. Verse 5, we are to be free from the love of money. Why? For he himself has said, I will never desert you. All the other exhortations are given a reasoning, a motive. But in verse 1, we have no such motivational clause. And perhaps that's because verse 1 is sort of an introductory statement. But I also think the reason why we're not given an explanation for why we should love the brethren is because none should be needed. It should be so obvious to us. Of course we love our family. Of course we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. As people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, of course we love our brothers. And the reason why it's so obvious is because God has so loved us. That's what the Apostle John said in 1 John 4. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Application, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That almost goes without saying. At least for the author of Hebrews, it does go without saying. If God so loved us that He would give up His only begotten Son, that He would forsake His only Son, that He would crush Him for our iniquities, if God loves us that much, shouldn't we love those for whom Christ died? Shouldn't we love those who have been so loved by our Father? Shouldn't we love the brethren Of course we should, because we love Christ and because, more importantly, He loves us. So love the church. A second way you can show love to Jesus and put Him in first place is by loving strangers. That's number two, love strangers. Verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, the specific first century context for this exhortation was probably this. There was a need constant in the first century and the centuries that followed to provide lodging and food both for itinerant traveling missionaries and also for persecuted Christians who were having to flee from one city to the other under threat of death. 
And oftentimes, as Acts 8.4 informs us, these two groups were the same. The people who were fleeing because of persecution were the traveling preachers. Acts 8.4 tells us those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And as they did this, they needed some place to stay. And most hotels in the ancient Near East were really just politely named brothels. And therefore, for reasons of reputation and for reasons of temptation, Christians tried their best not to stay in those places. And so it became very necessary for early Christians to be ready and to be willing to have a hot plate of food to serve up, to offer friendship and fellowship, to make a cot available to people who were passing through. And that's what's behind verse 2, primarily it seems. Now, how does that apply to us? Because this specific situation is not really prevalent in our day. Travel is much easier than it was, and so you can often go from one place to the next in a whole day and not have to stay the night. And there aren't Christians in our country roaming around homeless because they are being persecuted. But even though the context is a little bit different for us, I just want to remind you that the command is the same. The command is the same. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That means that when we are given the opportunity to host a missionary family or to be a resting place for a family that's on a journey traveling through, we need to be prepared. That doesn't mean that your house has to have all the amenities of a Holiday Inn or make people as smart as a Holiday Inn makes them. But you do need to be ready with genuine Christian compassion, concern, and hospitality. It doesn't matter how nice, how dingy your place is. What matters is you and that you're open in your heart and in your home. And that's especially true, and there's a, especially a reward, it seems, when the family is a family of absolute strangers to you. Because you never know, like Abraham so many years ago in Genesis 18, when the people who are stopping by and needing a place to eat or a place to stay might be angels. You never know when you're cooking lunch for the Lord's special servants. Now, having said all of that, we need to notice something else. And that is that though the main first century kind of application of verse 2 was probably to provide food and shelter to traveling Christians, the language of the verse does not make that the exclusive application. In other words, it doesn't say do not neglect to show hospitality to Christian strangers or to strangers who are evangelists or to strangers who are persecuted. It simply says do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And strangers is quite a broad word, isn't it? You tell your kids don't give candy to strangers. That means don't give or don't take candy from strangers. That means don't take candy from anybody that you don't know. That's a stranger. It could be anybody. And it could be anybody in verse 2. It could include believers and unbelievers. It can include people who don't look like you or talk like you or smell like you or come from the same neighborhood as you. It can include the homeless people or the perplexed people that wander some of our neighborhoods. These are the people in verse 2 that we are to welcome and befriend and feed. I don't know how all that needs to work out for you, but... We have to, as individuals and families, figure out a way that is both genuinely helpful to the person and reasonably safe to our family, but also authentically warm and welcoming 
We have to figure out a way to show hospitality to these strangers. And we can go to them and serve them in ministries like the City Gospel Mission and others, and we should do that. But there also has to be a way that as individuals and families, we can be individually and locally warm and welcome to absolute strangers. And I just want to encourage you to do some brainstorming about how that will work for you, where you live, where you work, and so on. Maybe it will be to invite someone to a picnic at your home. Maybe it will be to invite them to the fellowship meal at the church. Maybe it's as simple as saying, well, I'm not going to give you any cash, but I'll go into this Burger King with you and I'll buy you a meal and I'll sit down and eat with you and talk to you. Whatever the way is, we have to find ways to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Number three, how do we show love to Jesus? By loving others and specifically, verse three, by loving the persecuted church. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Now, as with verse 2, there is a specific first century context driving this verse. And we need to remember from chapter 10 that our author is addressing these words to a group of people who have known what it is like to be ridiculed and discriminated against and plundered and arrested simply for proclaiming the name of Jesus. You can see that in chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. So when he urges them here in these verses to remember the prisoners, it's almost certain that what he really has mainly in mind is their fellow church members who are perhaps even currently languishing in Roman dungeons somewhere, not for aggravated assault, not for petty theft, but simply for claiming that there is another king. It's these specific prisoners, it seems, that he is speaking of and urging them to remember in verse 3. And he, he makes that even more clear at the end of the verse when he says, you yourselves are also in the body. In other words, the prisoners that he's talking about are part of the body. I think he means the body of Christ. Now, in saying that that's mainly what he means, remember persecuted Christians, that's not to say, that, again, that Hebrews 13.3 could not legitimately lead someone tonight to remember the prisoners who were incarcerated for genuine wrongdoing. In fact, I would be thrilled if someone listening to this message tonight was led to go out and make an evangelistic visit to a prison or send evangelistic materials to someone in prison or get more involved somehow in a prison ministry. But as the heading that I gave you, remember or love the persecuted church, as that would indicate, I want to focus our attention on the main application that I think the author of Hebrews has in mind, which is remember the prisoners, remember those who are afflicted, namely your brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted for their faith. So then, how can we love the persecuted church? How can we love those who are ill-treated and imprisoned? Well, the first thing he says is that we should remember them. Remember them. For the Hebrews, that obviously meant remember specific faces and names that used to sit in the pews with you and now are sitting in a much darker place. We don't have that privilege. It would be a privilege if we were able to know firsthand persecuted believers. It would be a painful privilege, but a privilege. But it's one that, by and large, we don't have in this country. So how do we who don't know them, remember the prisoners and those who are ill-treated. The best way that I know is to learn their stories. That's how we remember them. We learn about them, get acquainted with where they live and 
who they are and what they are suffering. And the best way I know how to do that is, as I've told you before, to get and read the monthly magazine of this ministry called The Voice of the Martyrs. It's a Christian ministry that offers aid and encouragement to persecuted believers all over the world. We always have a copy in the resource rack. You can go to persecution.com to get a copy for free sent to you every month. If you don't know how to do that or don't want to uh, look that up, you can just tell me and I will order it for you and have it sent to you. But I just want to ask you if you would commit to do what we can in this country to remember the prisoners and those who are ill-treated. And in this way to put Jesus and his concerns in the first place. We must remember the persecuted church. But is that all we're to do? Is just remember them? Of course not. Rather, he tells us to remember them in a very specific way in verse 3. Remember them as though in prison with them. In other words, don't just think about them, but put yourself in their shoes. That's how you love them. Put yourself in their shoes. Now, I don't think that that means that you should lock yourself into a dark room somewhere and imagine what it would be like to be persecuted and imprisoned for your faith. Rather, when he says, put yourself in their shoes, remember them as though in prison with them, what he means is that we think about what needs we would have if we were in their position. What kinds of things would we ask for or hope for or pray for if we were the persecuted Christians? You should ask yourself, what would I hope my fellow Christians would be thinking and doing if I were imprisoned or if I were persecuted for my faith? And when we think of the answers to that question, then we need to go and do it. So what would we want? What would you want if you were in prison? Let me give you some ideas based on some other people who've been in prison. I think you would want prayer and lots of it. I think you would want visitors. I think you would want perhaps in some of these situations food. Again, when you think of prison, don't think of uh, Lebanon Correctional Institute or something here in America. Think dungeon. Think uh, sometimes in the third world just uh, metal rods out in the open with a roof over the top of them. I think you'd want visitors, you'd want food, you would want blankets, you would want perhaps a Bible to read if you were able to get one, or even if you weren't in prison, you might not be able to get one if you're in a persecuted country. Those are the kind of things that Paul asked for. He asked that visitors would come to him. He asked Timothy toward the end of his life when he was locked up for preaching Jesus, please bring me my cloak and my books, my Bible, Those are the kinds of things when I read the voice of the martyrs that persecuted believers are so excited to get. Simple things, a Bible, a blanket, food, someone to come and encourage them. You and I may not be able physically to go to China or to Sudan or any of these places to literally hand these things to these Christians in need, but we are able, we are able to, to support those who are doing so. We cannot go and sit in their prison cells. We cannot go and nurse their wounds, but we can strengthen the hands of those who are. We can fund Bibles to persecuted Christians. We can provide blankets. We can support those brave Christians who are on the front lines bringing these things to the persecuted church at the risk of their lives and not only bringing these things, but bringing a human touch as well. The Bible commands us to do it. The Bible commands us to remember these people.
And there's a little bit of motivation at the end of the verse, isn't there? Why should you remember the persecuted church? Because you yourselves also are in the body. Why should you remember the persecuted church and serve them? Because you yourselves are a part of the same group that is hated in so many places of the world. And who knows, I think this is what the author is getting at, who knows when your government or radical Muslims or secular humanists may gain the kind of upper hand over you that the Communist Party has over Chinese Christians today. Who knows when that will come? And when it does, what will we do then? Well, I'll call my lawyer, my Christian lawyer. He'll be in jail with you. He'll be in hiding with you. What will we do? What will we ask for? We'll be asking for copies of the Bible because they won't be readily available anymore. We'll be hoping that our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world will send us blankets and food and prayers and visits. We aren't there yet. Thank the Lord we aren't. But we or our children may be before we know it. And since we ourselves are in the same kind of position potentially as these people, we need in the meantime... Since we are also a part of the body, since we are from this same family that's so militated against in so many places, we need to do unto others, namely the prisoners and the ill-treated, as we would have them do to us in the same predicament. Love the persecuted church. I hope that you will take practical steps to do that. Number four, love your spouse. Love your spouse. There are many avenues in which we should honor and love our spouses or future spouses. But tonight we're going to limit the discussion to this one area of marital love mentioned in verse 4. Namely, the marriage bed. Marriage, he says, is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, we could just read that, and some of us, it might strike an arrow into our heart because even if we're not fornicating and adulterating literally, Jesus teaches us that it's not just literal. So just reading the verse ought to strike some of us with conviction. But I want to say to you that in the first century, as in our own, there were all sorts of unbiblical ideas afoot about sex and about marriage. And the danger that those ideas would infiltrate the church was perennial. And is perennial. And I use the word infiltrate intentionally because it's not often that Satan launches a direct, hostile, frontal assault on the church's morality. It would be too obvious. Generally, Satan slips things in through the side door when we aren't paying attention. And I want to suggest to you over the next two or three minutes that I think he's done this in our churches in America in the 21st century. Now, he has launched frontal assaults in some areas of the church and in the culture at large through the well-organized and vast homosexual agenda. We know that, and we are right to guard against that carefully, especially in the church. We are right to stand with brothers and sisters in Christ, for instance, in the Anglican Communion, who are clanging swords over this issue within the churches right now. But it seems to me 
that that's not the main way Satan is going to get us, is by homosexuals tearing down the walls of the church. It seems to me that though we have expended a lot of energy and a lot of resources fighting on this one front, that we may have left ourselves open to be flanked by some other more insidious attacks. Have you noticed that for all the sermons and speeches given over the last two decades, let's say, for all the sermons and speeches regarding homosexuality and divorce and adultery, that by and large, as we sit here tonight, those aren't the things that are threatening to ruin us. By and large, what really is threatening to ruin Bible-believing churches is that young women and young girls in the church dress often in almost the same seductive manner as the rest of the world, and young men and boys in the church are almost as involved in pornography as the rest of the world. The reason for some of that is that there are many professing Christians who aren't real Christians. But some of the reason is also that real Christians, young people and parents and pastors, all included, have not been paying close enough attention to Satan's Battle plans. We look at the big, obvious things, but we don't notice the side areas where he's really gaining momentum. And there's no doubt in my mind that for men in this church, young and old, pornography and just mental lust is a far bigger issue than homosexuality or physical adultery or fornication or divorce will ever be. Ever. And There's no doubt in my mind that far more than they are tempted to become lesbian or to leave their husbands, the women in our church, particularly the young women and the young girls, are tempted far more than those things. They're tempted to boost their self-esteem by the way that they dress, by being quote-unquote sexy. We've had all of our biggest guns aimed straight at homosexuality and divorce and adultery and Satan it seems in the church has ambushed us on far broader and more powerful but less obvious attacks and I just want to blow the trumpet tonight for you and for me and for our church to say we need to pay much closer attention to some smaller details and what I want to say is that obedience to Hebrews 13:4 for us and for our children Keeping the marriage bed undefiled starts a long way away from the marriage bed. It starts in the mind and in the heart and in the computer and in the wardrobe. That's where it begins. And if we don't defend those flanks, all the while while we're doing all the right things on the big issues, either we or our children after us are going to inherit much larger problems because Satan has worked his way closer and closer to the heart of the issue. And though we here may not face divorce tonight or fornication tonight or adultery tonight, if our children and if we continue to think like the world on the smaller things regarding the marriage bed, we will eventually become like the world on the larger things. We shouldn't wonder if verse 4 doesn't begin to ring an even more prophetic bell in the future within Bible-believing, solid churches. So let me just ask, where are you with Hebrews 13.4? Are you loving your spouse and the spouses of other people 
who spend time with you, who talk to you, who see you? Are you loving these people by defending your flanks and guiding your children to do the same? Or do you have all the big things in order but don't even realize that Satan has you exactly where he wants you? Love your spouse and love the marriage union. Finally, we can love Jesus, put him in first place by not loving money. Number five, do not love money. And it comes from verses five and six. Before we read them, let me just say what we're about to read is one of the most practical ways for you to free yourself up to love fellow believers, to love strangers, to love the persecuted church. You want to do verses one through four? Make sure you get verses five and six. Make sure that your character is free from the content with what you have. How would that help us love other people? Seems to just be a fifth bullet point, but actually it's kind of a sub point under the other four. It helps us because if we aren't in love with money, we will be generous enough to buy those Bibles and to buy those blankets and send them to those Christians in China. If we aren't in love with money, we might just feel a little bit more free not to have to work so much and be able to spend time with strangers and have guests in our home and go to the prison. And if we don't love money, then 10% to the church won't seem like a big deal at all. In fact, it'll seem rather normal or even small. And the missions offering that comes up periodically won't feel like a burden, but a wonderful opportunity if we don't love money. If we don't love money, we'll be able to love the persecuted church. We'll be able to love this church. We'll be able to love strangers with our time and with our money. It's very difficult to love other people if you love money. And it's impossible to love Christ if you love money. Isn't that what Jesus said? You cannot serve God and wealth. Luke 16, 13. We need to remember that serving God and loving Christ is really what we're all about here in Hebrews. This book is not mainly about loving others. That's just simply an avenue through which we love Christ, through which Christ has first place in our lives. But it's well not impossible to take that avenue if you love money. It's well not impossible to love other people if you love money. And it's certainly impossible to love Christ if you love money. And that means verse 5 is incredibly important for us. Incredibly important, especially if the first two commands are love God and love your neighbor, and we can't love God if we love money, and we can hardly love our neighbor. Verse 5 is really important, isn't it? I just ask you, as we've gone through the first four verses, was your conscience pricked about anything? I don't know if it was or if it needs to be, but if it was, if God said to you, you're not showing hospitality like you should, your heart's not open to that. Or if he said, you, you don't remember the persecuted church. In fact, you don't ever hardly think of them. Or if he said to you, you're not loving this church as you should. If your conscience is pricked already, could it be that one of the roots that is providing nourishment to the bad fruit in your life is that you love money? I don't know if that's true, but according to verse 5 and the rest of the Bible, it might be. Could it be for you just plain old-fashioned stinginess that keeps you from loving other people? Stinginess with your time, stinginess with your money. Or is it maybe too much work? Or is it, this is maybe is the most prevalent of all for some of us, that we're so frazzled 
and worried about making ends meet that we don't have time or energy even to notice the needs of other people, much less to get out and meet them. Isn't that true of some of us? I mean, we just, we're so concerned with what's going on in our lives that it's hard for us to even notice other people. Remember that you can't serve God and money, and you're going eventually to have to make a decision. And if you're struggling with that decision, you might pray that tonight might be the night when there is a change. And finally, in this point, I realize that someone may be saying, it's not really that I love money. I mean, I don't think I love money, but I'm just really in a tight financial situation right now, and I don't know that I'm really actually able to do some of the things that you're asking us to do. If that is your thought, just remember that God has said in verse 5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And that God has said in verse 6, through the psalmist, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? All these people that I'm worried about that are going to have more money than me or that I don't think I'm going to be able to pay or that I'm not going to be able to feed myself or whatever it is, what will man do to me if God is my God? Do you believe that if you would just obey these verses, do what God has asked us to do, with no thought of what it's going to cost you, that God would provide for your needs? Do you believe that? Or do you hear these verses and go, this sounds like a really good idea, but I just don't know if it'll work out. No, faith is evidence of things that we can't see. We can't see how it's all going to work out, but we can believe that if we would just do what God said and not love our money, that he would never leave us or desert us. Do you have that kind of faith? I hope you do. Is it that you think that you are providing the needs of your family? Or is it that you believe and know that the Lord is your provider? And if you're struggling with that question, have you looked lately, really looked lately, honestly, at the cross? Because it's there that God says to us, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? If God would give us His Son, why would He let us get in a jam by helping strangers? Why would He let us get in a jam by giving money away to the persecuted church? Why would He let us get in a jam by helping and loving and being like Christ? If He's already given us His Son, He wouldn't. So you see, it's the dying love of Jesus, as we already said, that motivates us to love. If he so loved us, we ought to love one another. But the dying love of Jesus doesn't just motivate us to love. It makes it possible for us to love, both in our hearts and in our pocketbooks. If he didn't spare his own son, then surely my pocketbook will have enough to supply for my needs. So just give him first place in your life and don't ask all the questions that normal people ask. The Gentiles worry about all these things, but your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Do you want to love Christ? Here are five simple ways to do it. Let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated. Honor the marriage bed. And make sure that your character is free 
from the love of money. Father, thank you that you haven't left us in the dark about what it looks like to love you. You haven't left us without explanation or motivation as to why you ask us these things. You haven't left us without an example in your son that you want to provide for us, God. It's amazing how often I think of you as stingy even though you've given your own son. But you haven't left us without an example of your kindness and your generosity. You've given us everything that we need for life and godliness and we pray now that you give us by your spirit the want to to live it. For Jesus' sake, amen.